Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to Be Real, guys. Uh, it's President's Day. Happy President's Day, even though you're not hearing it on that day. But uh, we both uh, more or less have the day off, and I always have the day off, as I lack full-time gainful employment. I'm Chance Solon Pfeiffer. What's up, Noah Ballard? Um, I certainly can't, like, out-bleak you there, Chance, but no. uh, I'm actually in central Jersey this evening. Uh mm. You know, sort of between homes at this moment. Uh, if you, you just outbleaked me, I think. Oh, did I win there? Did yeah, I? Did, did. I, did I bring it back over to my side? Yeah. Congratulations. And then a snowstorm, a snowstorm, and uh, my brother's birthday kind of derailed plans. I had to maybe be productive. In light of uh, Hail Caesar coming out just a couple weeks ago, we focused. On a particular theme that comes up three times in the filmography of 17 Cohen movies since uh, the mid 80s, we're talking about uh, we're talking about kidnappings in uh, in Cohen movies. And hopefully, if all goes well, you're reading this uh, attached to uh, a column I've written on the subject. I'm not going to read uh, anything right now, though though Noah is in a second. But a column in which I argue that they keep returning to this theme, one, because they love returning to the same themes in general, uh, two, because they love conspiracies, and three, I think as detail-oriented writers, they do a good job in all three of these movies of making a kidnapping movie that becomes quickly and sometimes surprisingly not about the kidnapping. So, Noah, do you want to you want to go from there? Sure. Mine's uh, a little more pointed than all that. Oh, Cohen brothers, where art thou? Okay. Somewhere in the frozen American North, in the backlots of a bygone cinema age, in a trailer in the Southwest, or are you hiding in plain sight amongst the idiots by whom you believe the world is occupied and operated? And now that you've ingrained yourselves into the fabric of what is considered artistically meaningful in this country, what is your endgame, Cohen brothers? Your formula is simple. You take a movie genre we love, and you make it with the rules of a genre that it isn't. Fargo, a zany small-town crime comedy shot as film noir. Hail Caesar, a zany comedy about making a movie shot as film noir. Or Raising Arizona, a zany comedy about unexpected parenting shot like a film noir. <laughs> You'll see there's a pattern here. And as much as we want to celebrate your cinematic achievements, they just keep making the same film noirs using unexpected other genres. So tonight... As we look at three similar Coen Brothers movies, all within the idea of a kidnapping gone wrong, we must ask ourselves, why do we find ourselves so impressed by these, the brothers Coen, when they can only feed us comedy noir or noir noir? Now I'm thinking blood simple, no country for old men territory. Can we really consider these artists the titans they appear to be? Or wouldn't it be fair to put them in the safe, undefined category of 
Yeah, I find them interesting. Like where we keep Quentin Tarantino. But isn't it that what makes them great? Creating generally profitable cinema with a lot of references we don't understand. Isn't that what I want a, a movie to be? Chance, I'm conflicted, so let's get into this. All right. Um, and interestingly enough, I think this is a pretty good uh, unintentional. It's a nice snapshot into the different parts of their filmography, too. We definitely have some some pre-prime, some prime, and dare we say post-prime, if you want to consider Hail Caesar that way. Um, so, yeah, we're getting we're getting a good it's a good sample. But didn't you find yourself like now that you're looking at Coen Brothers movies in this lens, like this weekend or however long it took you to watch these films, Mm -hmm. wasn't it kind of like eye opening to see how similar they all are? They are. And if people people haven't read the the AV Club did a really good piece this past week about how they uh, they keep making movies in twos. Um, where one is a comedy and one is a tragedy about the same thing. Um, so yeah, people have done some good writing. Uh, and I, I liked your points there about, they just love returning to the same thing and playing kind of, but I would argue that their, their, their style, their voice is just, they just know how to make a really good, like crazy film noir. And that's all of their movies. Right. Right. Um, where do you want to start? Hail Caesar? An army of technicians and actors and top-notch artistic people are working hard to bring to the screen our biggest release of the year. Hail Caesar is a prestige picture with one of the biggest stars in the world, Baird Whitlock. Eddie Mannix, played by Josh Berlin, is... uh, (laughs) What? Berlin? Not Berlin. Yeah. Well, I also say uh, biopic, so... Well, that's not the way either of those things are pronounced. (laughs) Josh Berlin plays a, a Hollywood studio... Fixer. This movie covers like what, thirty-six to forty-eight hours in his life as he, as he ping-pongs around solving the various problems of a golden age of Hollywood, nineteen fifties studio, on the lot, going to different sets, and chiefly responding to the kidnapping of uh, one of the studio's top movie stars, played by George Clooney, Baird Whitlock, who is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like the on- way you say that. <laughs> Working on his prestige picture, uh, Hail Caesar. What a great Hollywood name, too. It's really good. Really good. Charlton um, Heston doesn't sound like a real name if you think about it, does it? A lot of them don't. Yeah. Well, because Tom like, Cruise. <laughs> none of these are people's actual names, right? Aren't they all names they chose? Oh, man. Um. Anyway, I don't know how much further we need to go than that. He di- the kidnapping is the uh, inciting, inciting sort of incident as he's drugged and put in the back of a car and, and taken to a place. But where do you want to start? <laughs> now that I'm really thinking about this movie, it was pretty funny. Yeah. Oh, my God. Of course it was. But that's the thing about this movie is that you can tell that... I mean, and I don't know what like the, the AV Club like said about their... Whatever. Uh... I just feel like this one was not as serious as like a like it knew that it wasn't like very serious. Yeah, and I think that was part of what made it enjoyable. See, I found that to be like kind of lazy. Okay. Like I thought the whole like I, th- I mean they wrote the scripts too. It's not like they like pull a script out of a pile and make a movie. Like they plot every from the genesis of this movie all the way to the end. They are in control. Yeah, of course. And I just thought it was just like. Some of the subplots were just like, 
in terms of Coen Brothers movies, were pretty lazy. Yeah, it's very loopy, and I think I used the word ping pong sort of deliberately. It's just kind of like, let's visit this person who's standing in for this movie star. Let's visit Gene Kelly over here. Let's visit uh, Esther, what's her name? Esther Williams over here doing her aquatic picture. Right. Um, and part of the reason for that, and a really great thing about this movie, is uh, Roger Deakins' work as the cinematographer, frequent oh, collaborator. Yeah. He is creating these different genres of 50s movies in such a thorough, beautiful way, and he has to make like five of them right. for, for, like, Berlin, for Berlin to visit all these different people. Um, and that is really <laughs> beautiful. But yeah, it's not like a tight, it's not a tight weave. It doesn't, sometimes the scenes don't make sense in the order that they're in, you know? Hey, what's what's the cheapest excuse we could give to next to get to the next spectacle we can show off? Absolutely. And it was but it was so like I mean like, you know, it was like an evening with the Cohen brothers, you know, and their and all their favorite <laughs> all their favorite actors. Yeah. Well, okay. I I agree. You know, it was like Mandy Patinkin doing like his greatest Broadway hits or something. I agree with you there, but let me tell you my favorite part about this movie, though, and bringing up the Coens and their favorite actors. I think one of the best things about the Coen brothers is that they make actors that you know and don't know feel special. It's like as soon as they turn the camera on them. But then I think they do a great job of moving on. You know, I famous people both fictional and real are super important to this movie, but it to me, it never it never feels like self-reference necessarily. You know, like when you watch a Wes Anderson movie and it's just like, this person's in here because I'm Wes Anderson and don't you want Schwartzman? <laughs> and the audience is like, yeah, we want Bill Murray and Schwartzman. Oh, you mean Wes Anderson and his players? Exactly. And yeah. I think that the Coens are, have a little bit more, mm, integrity is too strong a word, but like a little bit more, they're more interested in the story than that. And so they make these, even like Francis McDormand's, very quick turn in the film room is really about the crazy thing that they wanted to show and not like a visit from a regular. Somebody slipped it under my door. We have your movie star. Gather $100,000 and await instructions. Who are we? The future. I think that the obvious part of this is Inside Lowen Davis because it it ends up raising the same questions even though this one, this movie is a lot lighter, loopier. And funnier. And so what happens without giving it away too much is that the kidnapping essentially moves us to a discussion about whether this exploitative, monolithic, more corporation than art entertainment system is good or bad and is worth celebrating as uh, something to do on a weekend or if you're the Coen brothers, the things that influence them to make movies. And it just raises a question about art and integrity and doesn't i wouldn't say it like comes down hard on one side but it's basically josh brolin's job to let you know that there's value in like work wouldn't you say um i can get on board with that i mean ultimately i think it even pulls back a little bit more and thinks and is like begging the question, like, is our idea of Hollywood sort of worth it? To me, it felt like a response to the movie, uh, the artist. Mm-hmm. in that 
But it didn't like hang to the sentimentality of like early Hollywood the way the artist did. No, it wasn't so sincere. It was kind of using the same backdrop to tell a much more cynical story. Yeah, showing you that this actor got jammed in here and like this person was sick that day, so we just brought in this other person. It's like a workplace. It's just like such a fine line to walk between that, like making a movie about Hollywood or like making a movie about Hollywood and being like self-congratulatory about it. And I don't know where it lands. But Brolin's got a heart and he's the engine of this movie and he's sort of like the common man who is sweating to make this all work. And I suppose he believes that it's worth it. And so in, in some way, like you kind of take his word for it. Did you ever see that, uh, that Barry Levinson movie? What just happened? No, it's basically the same movie as this. Okay. Um, but set in the present and Robert De Niro is the lead. And he's just like, the inciting incident is that he's been knocked down on his placement uh, on like the Vanity Fair issue of like the most powerful producers in LA. And now he's like in the background where he used to be in the foreground of the photo. Mm-hmm. And like the rest of it is just like the, sh- like the fires he has to put out, like being a Hollywood producer. Hmm. And it was, it's interesting, but it's not good. And I don't okay. know if this is good either. Like, I don't know if following an exec around is an interesting conceit for a movie is what I'm sort of getting at. I just, you didn't feel like this movie was kind of like a flat note. No. You're trying to like tell me that this is like a good, good movie, aren't you? I am trying to tell you that. I don't think. Oh, that's the worst. I think, well, I don't think we're arguing the same thing. I think if there's a problem with this movie, it's that it's too excitable and it just like loses track of things because it doesn't care about them. I don't think it's flat at all. So what are you calling it? Bad, good? You enjoyed, you had a good time in the theater, right? I just kept waiting for it to like happen. Like I was sitting there and like there were these moments where I really like liked it for like a five minute stretch. And then I just like fucking hated it for a five minute stretch. And I kept going back and forth. It was entertaining though. So I'll give it. Yeah, I'll probably give it a bad good. See, I think it's interesting you brought up film noir and I agree with that as a stylistic backdrop to so many of these movies. But here's the thing about the Coens. I don't think they're interested at all in like the well, normal in the normal beats of a story, especially building to a climax. And I can see where if that's really what you want, like it's dissatisfying. But I just don't think that they they don't care about that. Even though it seems sloppy to have the key piece of climactic information given off screen in this movie. Right. But I just don't think they care. Um and I was along for the ride. Yeah, I'd call it good good. Like a B plus though. Not like amazing. It's so all over the place. See I think the problem with this movie and why it doesn't work is because it really doesn't have a mystery, but it's made like a mystery. Yeah, I can see where that would be dissatisfying. <laughs> you can see like the, the format of the film, like essentially not having a fifth act, like would yeah. potentially hurt it. Okay. Yeah, I can. I don't know. I don't come to the Coens for the twist. Yes, you do. No, I don't. I come to the Coens for scenes, no, and I come to the Coens for actors. You come to the Coens to see Steve Buscemi's leg coming out of a wood chipper. Yeah, I, I mean, that's one reason. I would, I don't know. That's not a twist, though. That's just a memorable scene. That's like a scene. climactic moment. There was no climactic moment in this movie. 
Should we move on to Fargo? Move on to that uh, movie with that foot and that wood chipper? Oh my god. Uh, you What's that? You oh, betcha. Oh, sure, yeah. Let's move on. You um, betcha. 1990s. Oh, yeah? <laughs> That's good. That's a little used one. I like it. Um, 1996's Fargo. I heard a really interesting theory um, on a podcast the other day from uh, a couple of the ex-Grantland people that they, so they laid out some of the Coen brothers movies in order of like when they're set um, and speculating that as the movies draw closer and closer to the present, they tend to get darker. What do you think about that? That these two people don't have a very rosy view of, of today or that they're happier making a movie saying that the 1950s were more fun. I mean, just like the way they view like what present day looks like is probably true, but it's pretty fucking bleak. Yeah. Okay. So you agree with the theory. I thought it was a good theory. Yeah. I Uh, agree with that. Yeah. Do you want to synopsize this one, Noah? Sure. Um, So William H. Macy owes a lot of money. You never really figure out why he owes the money. Is that true? Yeah. I don't think you do. He's just kind of... He owes, yeah, whatever it is. He owes money, and to do to get the money that he owes, he's devised this scheme with his like simpleton wife and her like vindictive father, Mm -hmm. uh, who has a lot of money. Who has a lot of money to hire these two guys to kidnap the wife, hold her away for a couple days, get a million dollars out of his father-in-law, pay these guys like eighty thousand dollars or forty thousand dollars. And then keep the rest of it and have it to pay off whatever he owes that he like can't ask them about. I thought that was such an interesting thing that you, if you think about it, you never find out like what it was even for. Once upon a time. Looks like she's going to turn cold tomorrow. Yeah, you got that right. There was a salesman called Jerry Lundergaard. Okay, real good then who always dreamt of striking it rich. Weed, have you had a chance to think about that deal I was talking about, those 40 acres there in Wayzata? Jerry, we're not going to just give you $750,000. No, no, but see, I... This movie was cool to come back to, because I really think you could kind of consider this like like a neoclassic almost. Like, there are things in this movie that... that happen where, even if I didn't remember they were in the movie they were filed away somewhere in my mind of like how you write good dialogue and how you make a good scene and you watch and you're like, Oh, Alexander Payne took that for his movies or the Coen brothers took that for their own movies later. And this is kind of the birthplace of some, of some cool ideas. Yeah. What I love about this movie the most is, and this is what I love about like good Coen brothers when they really like lean into what they know how to do well, which is tell these kinds of stories is uh, how every scene in this movie matters. Mm-hmm, for sure. Like every scene and there's no dawdling. And when they're done giving you, the, they, they've made this movie like a pulpy noir film. Yeah. When it is otherwise like a zany comedy, like this movie could have been mounted by like, you know, some other director really. And just think about like how it could have been like a Paul Blart mall cop. Oh yeah. Movie. It's a great point. Yeah, the staging is really excellent, and it's much better than Hail Caesar. The character staging is like because you really and you don't. I didn't quite realize it while it was happening, but you have like what's like almost 
six main players in this movie and you just kind of come in and out of them and you don't really notice and uh Frances McDormand in her Oscar winning role as Marge uh as Marge the the sheriff um she comes in much later than you think and at the end you're like wow did I really spend like 15 minutes with each of those people and you kind of right. did and it uses the kidnapping this is a point I, I try to make in the column it uses the kidnapping pretty beautifully to create like a fulcrum and a battle line between these two and I argue that the kidnapping is ultimately becomes a place to discuss the mirrored lack of masculinity between these two dudes Buscemi and Macy and they are both like fighting with these to impress these like more masculine and crazier and more violent men around them in this game right. of well that's what i think is so funny about this movie and why it's so good because you basically have this sort of seesaw with william h macy on one end yeah and steve buscemi on the other yeah and you know that their fates are entwined and you sort of see them go up and down sort of being bullied by these two more dominant men yep. and then yeah and then you sort of see it how it gra- it's grounded by francis mcdormand's yes Who's the only like sane character in the whole movie? Did you start the show? Did you tell me? I watched the whole first season this week. Oh wow! It um, was it's incredible. It's incredible the TV show. The first season like plays by its own rules in a crazy way. The second season I think is probably technically technically better. Um, oh wait, I haven't seen the second season. Oh yeah, I think it's I think it's the second season's definitely better. But the first season is. <laughs> is- <laughs> I'm so pumped. <laughs> The first season is great for like, I can't believe they're doing that. Um, On FX. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, but there's a really good line in season two. This doesn't spoil anything where uh, Bo Keem Woodbine plays this awesome uh, Kansas city gangster who comes up to Minnesota. um, And he has this great speech to Patrick Wilson where he's like, people think you guys are so nice. You're polite, but you're not nice this sort of folksy shtick you put on can be very defensive and you're like trying to alienate me as an outsider. And I think Macy and McDormand are amazing at like tapping into that level of like gut politeness that can actually be like super cold. I mean, it's, it's so funny to see all these people operate by this like code that's like completely unspoken. Yeah. And then you have these two outsiders of Buscemi and, um, Stormare. What's, uh, Peter Stormare and it's just hysterical because it's almost like like my cousin Vinny level like, absolutely level of street smarts to like whatever the their charming down home thing is that but it's fake I mean like William H Macy's a, like has the same moral center as these guys and it's a, it's a good point because I really liked Martin Freeman on the show but I I was surprised to find how many more things I think Macy is juggling. I think Freeman like picked a thing and went with it. And Macy is. I think, I think, think, well, the thing about Macy is I think Macy is a psychopath. Yeah. I think Martin Freeman is more of a sociopath. Okay. Like he understands, he, he figures out that if he can get away with a crime, then like he can do anything he wants. You're right. I like that. And then William H. Macy is just like, I mean, he's basically Ben Mendelsohn from uh, Mississippi Grinds. Love it. I mean, he's in the same wavelength there, but he like has no, 
interest in other people. Nor does he know how to get what he wants from them. Right. <laughs> Unlike yeah. Martin Freeman. And He's I think like watching Kilgrave him, or something without the powers. I think why yeah, I think watching him try to get what he wants and truly not be able to connect with anyone on any level is very interesting. <laughs> yeah, but um, he's he, uh, he's definitely an alien. Yeah, the, well, the the line one of the funniest and saddest lines in this movie is when he's trying to explain to his kid why they shouldn't call the cops when the mom is kidnapped, and Macy's like, "Well, it's just not you can't do it. Like, just ask Stan Grossman," and he's telling his kid who's like freaking out about his mom maybe dying, uh, like using the recommendation of this lawyer he's never met. Like, it's great. He just doesn't know yeah. how to talk to anyone. It's it's really funny. And then on the flip side, like, uh, Peter Stormare and Steve Buscemi are, they are super good. They're, like, doing, like, an almost Abbott and Costello thing in the car at the beginning. If right. Abbott, like, w- might kill Costello with an axe at any moment. At any moment. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think it's so funny paralleling the show is that in like the similar duo they have come in from Fargo. Right. Goldberg and the deaf guy. So he, Steve Buscemi accuses um, him of being a mute and he literally is a mute. Yeah. Or he's deaf mute. Yeah. That's, it was, the parallels between the shows are funny and how they use tropes and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Where's Pancake's house? What? We stop at Pancake's house. What are you, nuts? We have pancakes for breakfast. Gotta go to a place where I can get a shot and a beer and steak, maybe. Not more fucking pancakes. Come on. You know, they're really good with the help of good cinematographers at at making places feel real. But I couldn't shake the feeling, given that the upper Midwest is where the Coen brothers are from, that they knew this place really well like in the kitchens with a bad wood paneling and the shot where they come out of the diner and they're just like standing underneath interstate signs and major midwestern cities are 90 percent interstate signs um yeah. it just felt so true to life and the other thing i love the harvey president i'll talk about him the idea that even rich people in like minneapolis at, at least in the 90s like even the people who had money like didn't know how to spend it in a tasteful right. way like his bad coat and bad office it was all just pitch perfect yeah that's what's so funny about their movies and when they are good is that you know in a normal movie set in like Minneapolis or you know like Fargo yeah. um or Brainerd they would have been like oh so it'll probably have to like snow and it'll be mostly flat but they wouldn't like the production crew wouldn't like really embrace the location as much as like, I'm agreeing with what you were saying. Totally. They wouldn't look at the naturally unsightly parts of it as something right. to you have to include. And the Coens being right. from there did that. Frances McDormand. Can we sing her praises for a little while? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. It's basically the end of this movie, the scene in the car where they're going back to the police station is basically the equivalent of the scene in No Country where Brolin's wife is sitting with Anton Chigurh, only it just ends the complete opposite way. But it's the same movie. It's a person who is pure goodness being like, I can't possibly understand you. And luckily in this one, the person is in a, a police car cage. So, And these three movies work too for this idea 
they're so interested in what people who are considered quote unquote locals would be like in a specific area. Totally. So in like Hail Caesar, like they went very zoomed in on like, what do you, someone who lives near the studio, like, what is that like? Mm-hmm. And then for this one, it's someone who lives in Fargo, North Dakota, or lives in Brainerd, North Dakota. Like, what is your, what is it like to be a cop there? Yeah. But they're so zoomed into like the cultural identity of a specific place that I don't know. That's, that's sort of what I'm getting at. Like the way that, they portray the modern sort of idiot. Totally. I mean, and and jumping off that, I think they're just really good. I think the thing is that even if you like watch some of these movies and you're like, I feel like on the whole that was mishandled. I think that they're close writing. And uh, like I said, that produces amazing scenes is kind of hard to second guess. Like they're such good close writers. Cause like you said, they, they care in a very, um, responsible way and imaginative way about like what it's so what's it like to spend a day there and they they take their notes and come up with great ideas and they do that yeah, yeah. and I just think when they go smaller with movies like this their idea of the American idiot is like way more potent totally because I'm I don't know I'm just not interested in I guess I just wasn't that interested in what they had to say about like Hollywood filmmaking in the 1950s. Are you interested in what anyone has to say about that, though? Not really. See, that's what I think. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I, I, that's what I, that's good to get out of you. Yeah. But I, I don't, I mean, and I think that was a trap for them to fall into as like, quote unquote, like American film artists, like making a movie about making movies. I also think it's funny when their characters are self aware or not. Like that, and that's also well. That's the, the interesting thing about like William H Macy as compared to Josh Brolin, the character alone. Josh Brolin spends so much time being self-aware and questioning, like, "Am I the crazy person here? Like, should I leave and take a more sane job? Like, am, am I is what I'm doing right?" Right. And then you go to William H Macy, who is a complete scumbag and like a total failure, but he doesn't realize. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't know that any of those things are true about him. He's doing what he needs to to survive. Right. So comparing these two like very self-aware and then not self-aware at all characters, I think may speak to why the movie doesn't, in my feeling, work as well in Hail Caesar as it does in Fargo. Right on. Fargo, though. Good, good. We've said enough, right? Oh, 100%. A grade A movie. A neoclassic. I'm not afraid to say it. Well, let's get to let's get to the early stuff. Let's uh, let's see where it all started. And speaking of local idiots in uh, localized places, raising Arizona, nineteen eighty seven. Uh, Nick Cage is a uh, pathological. He calls himself a recidivist, or somebody calls him that at some point. He uh, he keeps robbing convenience stores and he keeps going to prison, not totally against his will. He likes the communal stability of prison as opposed to the the temptation and the endless possibilities of the outside world he quickly falls in love with in the prologue the voiceover prologue with uh holly hunter who plays a policewoman named ed they uh they try to have a baby they cannot ed cannot have a baby and so they decide to steal after a little bit of consideration one of the Arizona quintuplets, one of the one of the five new babies of furniture mogul 
Nathan, Arizona. And uh, let's go from there. Turn to the right! The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. You're a flower, you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay, then. My lawless years were behind me. Our child-rearing years lay ahead. Didn't you find that, like, this movie was almost shot with, like, a like a magical realism to it? Totally. Like, the, this movie doesn't necessarily play with, like, you know going in, maybe because of the voiceover that you're watching, like, a fable. Mm-hmm. You're watching, like, a, what is a, a basically a bedtime story? Yeah. About... I mean, it's a it's a premise movie, but like the premise is so weird like to think about in like the modern like people just don't steal other people's children. And like, that's not as cool as the movie thinks it is. <laughs> right. But because it operates on this sort of like winky, goofy bedtime story morality, like if you just feel enough that any of your actions are justified, that I don't that I found like both interesting, but also like somewhat grating in retrospect. Totally. Well, and the very flip side of that, I think is the best thing about this movie. If you feel enough, like your actions may not have been justified, then your guilt can literally create a motorcycle riding monster. Um, so yeah, right. it's a fable that hinges on, I guess your personal valuations of what is, what is moral and what is created out of that. Right. Yeah. And talking uh, about like a self-aware protagonist, you have <laughs> so you have Hail Caesar, who he's so self-aware that he can't get anything done. You've got a guy who's completely unself-aware, just you know, living like a parasite. And then in this one, you have someone who's so self-aware about their like their emotional and physical needs that he's just at peace. He's like the most zen character there is. Yeah, and he knows his his vice. He knows his vice. And he's just, like, trying to decide whether or not to give in to that. Right. He only has the one vice, apparently. Um, it's very specific. Let's right. talk he doesn't about... even really drink, does he? Not really. Let's talk about... Yeah. Can we talk about Nick Cage? I think this is... <sighs> this is super... A really interesting... To steal your word from the last discussion. This is a super interesting Cage artifact, this movie. Okay. Um, so you know that the Coens and Cage did not get along. Did oh, you know during that? the production of this movie? Yeah. Uh, I did not know that. Cage complained that they <laughs> that they liked their script and wanted him to read it, and they complained that he refused to read the script without doing oh, weird oh <laughs> without doing weird <laughs> stuff. And they, of course, never worked together again. Um, <laughs> And so, in one way... He just wants to do weird stuff. In, just let him do weird stuff. In one way, you are watching one of... You're watching a pretty good, pretty tame Cage performance. And in another way, he is trying to ruin the movie, like, actively, in the way he <laughs> says lines. Because in my memory, it's, it's one of his most normal roles. But sometimes... He's speaking so slowly and quietly that, like, Holly Hunter appears visibly frustrated to be on screen with him. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I don't know if I would go that far. No, I think so. But there's... 
it's weird because there's both a lot of intensity on screen and none. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, that's the thing. And maybe they had to pick a more aggressive because this movie compared to the other two, it definitely has a very more, very aggressive uh, cinematic style to it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It has a sort of train spotting early Danny Boyleness to it. Yeah, things are sped up and the camera sped cameras up. on things the ground kind of... while things are speeding toward it. But didn't you find this movie just to be kind of like annoying and nonsensical after a minute? Absolutely. Absolutely I did. Because you have I just don't think they quite had the budget or the taste or their nuance worked out yet. Right. Like they definitely have the energy like the stuff that you see in other movies, but I didn't have as much fun going back to this one because the Coens, even when they're like being messy, they don't lack energy. Like they never lack energy. So like sometimes you go back and listen to a band's first album, right? Just because you want to feel the the unbridled like rawness, but that's not really that. Well, Blood Simple, their first movie is like, that's just an incredible, have you seen that? I haven't seen Blood Simple. Oh my God, the... That movie is like the best first album ever. That's awesome. I should see it. Um, you should. But when you come back to Raising Arizona, you I found myself mostly seeing the things that they at which they became much better. And so right. there's not that much joy in that. Yeah, they don't quite understand how to express the concept of fate in a visual sense yet. And I feel like they got really good at that. Yeah. Like, the idea of, like, is this real or is this not, like, can't be a question for them. You just have to buy in. That's interesting. If that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. And I feel like when you're talking about fate working well in their later movies, whether it's Fargo or No Country, they do a really good job of portraying that through desolation. And in this movie, they are in a desolate part of the country for sure, but they are so aggressively burning rubber which is not yeah. the best way to portray that idea right i think this is interesting that this is their second movie yeah so it's a little bit more elaborate than blood simple um maybe it's just the sophomore slump but they come back with miller's crossing three years later which really could not be more different than this movie what a strange movie that is but it's like it's not as magic it's like not magical realism like this one is no no yeah i think they were just kind of trying to figure out how to be artists you know like i think the prologue is very good um like i really enjoy the prologue to this movie which is like a 10 minute kind of voiceover cage explaining his life and how he got here kind of thing but i think by the time you get to the epilogue you sort of see the incongruity like they're not they didn't quite make the movie that they were thinking of making in between like the sight gags got in the way of this kind of um, more more thoughtful movie that I think they set out to make. And some of the sight yeah. gags, some of the sight gags are not great. The dogs, the babies crawling away from him, like it's just it's a bit much in a kind of a stupid way. Right, and like something about the set and production design is like very much like. Like nightmare can I say that? Yeah. Like all the rooms are like way too big and the people are very little in them. Mm-hmm. And like, what? In, I don't know, like their trailer is just kind of bizarre. It sort of makes sense though because Cage is creating Tex Cobb 
through a nightmare, but yeah, like as a visual aesthetic, that's not the one I would choose. People go nuts for this movie. You know that, right? That said, Holly Hunter is terrific in this movie. Um, oh, yeah. And they call her back to play that same role in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where she tells off George Clooney because um, she's just a responsible woman who's been trying to raise a family around this bumbling man who can't stay <laughs> out of jail again. Um, but she's so wonderful. In fact, it's weird. I think her best moments are actually with Goodman and Forsyth when uh, Nicolas Cage's inmate friends who break out of prison and show up at their trailer. I think she has really good chemistry with these two giant uh, men who are playing brothers. She's this small woman holding a baby kind of laying into them. There's a real like kind of spark plug role for her, but she's also steadier. It's good. And without her, by the way, if the person playing the Ed role was like... Uh, I don't know, just average, this movie would right. be like 25% worse, and which would make it a bad movie. <laughs> so what do you think about a rating, pal? Um, I think bad good. I have, might have to go bad bad. Okay. I like, didn't have, you didn't a have a good fun time? watching it. No. And I didn't think it did much for their oeuvre. I think people watch it and in it, because, okay, so one of the most... And watching it this time kind of undid this for me. One of the most common film like hypotheticals I hear over and over again is like, what if Nick Cage had worked with better directors and not turned out to be such a weirdo? And I think people love this movie because they go back and see him in a movie that's retroactively considered good and they see him in a in a decent part where he's not the one trying to make the Tell movie. Me! <laughs> <laughs> he's not the one trying to make the movie exciting and they like that and so they're like oh what if nick cage had worked with the coens again instead of george clooney or what if he'd worked with all these better directors but i think if you watch this movie closely you can tell why because people didn't want him fucking around with their good material and you can kind of see why he got banished to nonsense Oh, man. I'm just looking back at his uh, storied film career. Who, Nick's? Oh, yeah. It's not that he was in a lot better movies before he got really bad. It's that he he's just <laughs> in no good ones now. <laughs> right. <laughs> and well, you we... can see, like, once he got nominated for his Academy Award, or he won, didn't he? For Leaving Las Vegas, yeah. For Leaving Las Vegas, but after he won that, he's like, he said, fuck it in such a huge way. Listen to these five, these next six movies. The Rock, Con Air, Face Off, City of Angels, Snake Eyes, and 8mm. Yeah. That was over the course of three years. <laughs> um, I don't know what to say, man. And then he's like, oh, I should go work with Martin Scorsese and bringing out the dead. Oh. Martin probably has a horrible experience with him. And his next movie, gone in 60 seconds. Um, well, so, yeah, what can what can one say about these the brothers Cohen? I think it's interesting that you uh, kind of position them as as curiosities still 17 movies in. Um, I don't know. 
I think the comparison to Tarantino is interesting, though, because you you kind of label them as just interesting, um, and I feel like people really revere both of those. But I feel like Hateful Eight and this and Hail Caesar were both in their combines and compared uh, record of films was the probably one of the flimsier ones, right? Well, I would say. Yes, I would say that they're both at points in their career where people can legitimately wonder if they are on, like, if they're coming back to the level that they once were. And maybe the answer is no, and maybe the answer is yes, but the door kind of opened there for both, I would say. Right. Whether like, they- I'm worried that they're both going to become, like, sort of irrelevant if they make another, like, kind of tone deaf movie. Well, yeah, not that they've lost their abilities, but just that, like, they have aged into a place where their indulgence feels like something that they no longer think about, right? I just don't know if I feel like the Coens or Tarantino yet have that, like, Spielberg or Scorsese, like, emeritus status. Both of those people are 20 years younger than the so-called emeritus. Right. So I would hope that we have some more good movies in there. Right. Buddy, it's been a pleasure. How? <laughs> Okay. Uh, I always, oh, yeah? I always love talking to you. Oh yeah, <laughs> you can find us at berealguys.com. Listen on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher. Shoot us an email or a tweet at berealguys at gmail dot com or at berealguys. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, yeah, that's it. Happy President's Day, Warren G. Harding. Underrated. I'll be building a birdhouse. You can't kill that demon without uh, stabbing the good boy, so be on your way. Peace.